Welcome. My name is Julian Schlossberg, and the name of our show is Movie Talk. And each week, we'll be talking to some of the men and women who work in motion pictures, theater, and television. Well, I'm happy to actually let the audience know that I'm going to be speaking today with Richard Benjamin, who you know is a movie star in Goodbye Columbus and Catch-22 and Diary of a Mad Housewife, Portney's Complaint, The Last of Sheila, Westworld, Sunshine Boys, House Calls, Love at First Bite, and you want to know that's just the first decade. Unbelievable, that man did. And here's what you don't know, probably. He's done about 20 movies and films that he's directed, and he's directed them with some of the biggest stars in Hollywood. You want to hear who? Okay. Tom Hanks, Clint Eastwood, Shirley MacLaine. Sidney Poitier, Peter O'Toole, Burt Reynolds, and he's still standing. <laughs> Richard, I feel, I hope I'm right, that you always wanted to be an actor. You always wanted show business. Is that true? Yes. In fact, when I was in the sixth grade, I was cast as Scrooge in the sixth grade play at PS 87 on 77th Street and Amsterdam Avenue. And it took me about six or eight months to learn it because I had no idea what I was saying. <laughs> and then I did it. And then Mr. Rothman gave me my first critique. And who was he? Principal of the school. And he came up to me and he said, Richard, I don't think it's bah humbug. I think it's bah humbug. <laughs> well, that means you had your first review? My first review, yes. And it was negative. <laughs> well, preparing you for our business, pretty much, I guess. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. But do tell me, you went to the High School of Performing Arts. You're a West Side guy, West Side of Manhattan. Yeah. Did you have to audition to get into the High School of Performing Arts? Yes. You may know that in New York, and especially in New York City, there are no really regional high schools that if you don't get into Stuyvesant or Bronx Science or Brooklyn Tech or one of those elite schools, you're going to be somewhere where it's not going to be too great. But the other one of those kind of schools that you had to audition for was the High School of Performing Arts, and there was also music and art. So it was a big deal because it was almost like getting into university or something. If you didn't make one of those schools you probably weren't going to get a fabulous education. You would if you got into one of those schools. So, you know, at what was it, 14 years old or something, you're rolling the dice with your life at 14. And it's pretty young for that. But I did. I auditioned for it and got in there. And I'm really grateful that I did. It is a great school and it was fabulous. Do you have any memory what you had to do to audition? I don't remember that, no. No. Then let's jump to Northwestern, because that is a huge school for you in your life. It's really the first big thing that happens to you because of not only personal, but professional. Yeah. At Performing Arts, we had a uh, college advisor. She was a sweet lady. She was the librarian. And my friend, Stanley Silverman, who I'm still close to, and Shelley Berger, they, these are my friends that I went to high school with. We see each other all the time now. And Stanley had gotten a letter for some reason from Paul Lynn, 
about Northwestern. Paul Lynn went to Northwestern because now you're 17 and you're saying, where am I going to go? What am I going to do? And Stanley said, uh, Paul Lynn said, it's a great school. And of course it is and was, but I didn't know anything about it. So I said, well, so I sat down with the college advisor. I said, what about Northwestern? She said, well, I hear the food is good. (laughs) So she was wrong about that. (laughs) and she didn't know anything about the school but i said you know i hear there's theater there and all of that and so i applied to northwestern and again the path taken it it changed my life and completely in so many ways and of course northwestern had this great acting teacher alvina kraus who was brilliant and charlton heston went there and pat neal and uh, a whole bunch of fabulous people went there anyway this woman was completely brilliant. And our lives changed totally there or took this tremendous direction there because I met my wife there, Paula Prentice, Paula Ragusa at the time. And you talk about luck and stuff. Paula was at Randolph-Macon Women's College. She transferred as a junior to Northwestern. I was a sophomore when she transferred there. So I lived at this dorm which with Latham House, which was the dorm of the misfits. We were the theater people and, uh, you know, everybody that was kind of odd but entertaining, and some of them were uh, quite brilliant. Anyway, on the day I got back to school at Northwestern, a friend of mine, Jack Johnson, had been watching the new kids who were coming in auditioning for a play in the theater and he said, there's a woman there, there's a girl there. You, Benjamin, this girl is for you. You better get down there. She's on stage right now. She's auditioning for Piergint. She's auditioning to play a troll. <laughs> I said, you know, I don't want to, what do I care? He said, I'm telling you, get down there. So I did. And on stage is this gorgeous girl. And she's got her, you know, was 19, I don't know, 58 or something. And girls had those long skirts and cinch belts. But because she was auditioning for a troll, she had her skirt pulled all the way up and tucked into this belt. So I got into the theater and saw this gorgeous woman with the longest legs I've ever seen (laughs) in my life on stage there. And something happened. She got upset about something, and she jumped off the stage, ran up the aisle, and out of the theater, and into Lake Michigan. Lake Michigan (laughs) is right there. And her friend, Linda Radley, went out after her, and the two of them are standing up to their thighs in Lake Michigan having a cigarette. (laughs) It looks like a poster for bitter rice or something. (laughs) Two gorgeous girls out in the middle in the middle of the lake, not in the middle, but up to their thighs there. And <laughs> later, Jack came over to me and said, well, what'd you think? I said, well, you know, she's gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous. And I'll bet she's a pretty good actress, but she'll have to learn to stay in the theater. <laughs> That's the first moment I laid eyes on her. And you have the nerve to say that you people were strange? 
<laughs> yes, well, we won't for each other, I'm sure. <laughs> well, we'll talk quickly about Paula, and I want to talk more about you today, but she does get a film contract when you guys are in Northwestern from MGM. This is kind of wild. Again, luck, fate, I don't know, show business. So, Alvina Krauss says, as a man coming from MGM, in those days, his name was Dudley Wilkinson, MGM still had scouts. They had people who went around and, you know, the college and various, just to generally see what's out there. So I say to Paula, we have to audition for this. And she's, no, I don't want to do that. I'm doing theater. I don't want to have anything to do with that. The Krauss says in the acting class, there's a blackboard with a wooden frame around it. And she says, if anybody wants to audition for Mr. Wilkinson, put your name up on the board. Everybody looks at, no, no, we don't want any part of that. You see, we're theater people. <laughs> nothing to do with movies. You understand, yeah. the, you know, that commercial thing. So nobody gets up to sign on the thing. I say to Paula, we let's do this. You've got to do this. And she, I don't want to do this. I, I'm going to do these plays at Summerstock, at Krauss's Summerstock. I'm going to play Eleanor Roosevelt in Sunrise at Campobello. Not exactly the perfect casting, but she's that's what she, <laughs> that's what she wants to do. So I said, no, I convince her. We go back to the auditorium where the blackboard is. We get there. There are no black spaces left on the blackboard, <laughs> including on the wooden frame. They all, all put their names up on there. All the theater people who were not going to go, yes. Yeah. So we put our names up. Anyway, we do a scene from A Hat Full of Rain for this guy, and he's sitting. It's a blizzard, by the way. It's February, and it's a blizzard. And Paul is wearing her hair is in front of her face and that she's got my sweater on and stuff like that. Cause she didn't want any part of this, but we do this scene. And while we're doing the scene, I can see he's looking around me to try and see this girl. And I actually have to kind of turn her. <laughs> and then we finish. And as we're going out the door, Krauss says, Paula, turn around, push your hair back and tell Mr. Wilkinson a little about yourself. Anyway, it does. Cut to June, call from MGM, will Paula Ragusa come out here and test for this part in this movie where the boys are? I mean, you wow. can't make this up. No. Actually, you would think it is made up. <laughs> you don't think it's made up. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, how does NBC and you become a page? When does this take place? After Northwestern? During? During, yeah. I was a page and guide. First, I was a guide. I took people around on tours. You know, you do three or four of these a day because they or more maybe because uh, they last about an hour and a half or something like that. And after a while, you start to make things up. <laughs> you tell them the RCA building sits over the subway. I, I don't know. You make up. I don't know. There's ten thousand miles of cable here in the building. <laughs> And the tourists say, oh, you know, they're, they're very interested in that. You may start to do other things. Then I said, we're out in the hall. And I said, now listen, David Sarnoff, the head of RCA, <laughs> is coming down the hall. You mustn't, you know, he doesn't want to be disturbed or anything. But that gentleman, nice white-haired gentleman coming down the hall, 
is David Sarnoff. Don't, you know, well, their cameras whip out and take <laughs> pictures of somebody who knows who he is. It's not me. But you've got to entertain yourself while you're doing this. Well, my favorite story that you told me, and I wish you'll tell it again, was that you were at your desk and you decided <laughs> to call Chet Huntley. Did, yeah. Who has the Huntley Brinkley Report, which is this huge newscast. And you're a page at this point. That's the fabulous thing about being a page. Aside from the $62 you got every two weeks, <laughs> you were in. You were sitting. I, when I, after the, I was a guy that was a page, and I'm at my desk, I think on the third floor or something like this is where you basically answering the phone and stuff like that. But you have access to everybody. That's what's amazing. And I thought, well, <laughs> who will I be today? Oh, I know. I'll be a journalist today. Um, I'll be a newscaster today. And right down the hall is the studio where Huntley Brinkley is. Huntley's in Washington. and uh, No, Huntley's in New York. Brinkley. And yeah. Brinkley's in Washington. And I said, well, I'll call there and see if I get an appointment. And sure enough, Secretary, yes, come. Mr. Huntley can see you tomorrow, blah, blah. So I go in there and try and convince him that journalism is really what I'm interested in. <laughs> and I'm thinking that he may today say, you know what? I've got a spot for you on tonight's telecast. <laughs> you know, I can see that. The, and he says to me, well, the thing you should be doing is go to a small town somewhere and find a spot if you can in a little newspaper way off somewhere and start to get it. And by that time, my eyes are glazed over because <laughs> he's not giving, he, I'm not going to be on TV tonight. Um, <laughs> what small town am I going to? Well, I, he couldn't have been more generous. He really was to take the time even for me. So that was my excursion into journalism, which lasted <laughs> a minute and a half. You know, you had a lot of interesting people, not while you were there necessarily, that came out of the NBC page guides. I don't know if you know that even Gregory Peck and Eva Marie Saint. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Besides besides Michael Eisner, who headed up a couple of studios, and oh, yeah. Ted, Ted Koppel. A lot of people came from there. That was what was great about it, that it was an entrance, you know, and yes. you had access to all these people. I think it, you'll be interested to know that it was harder to be an NBC page than to get into an Ivy League school. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was a big deal. Big deal, yeah. Anyhow, we have to now discuss, you know, you keep saying luck, but I see it's just good fortune. Good fortune. I don't think, uh, you know, you have a lot of talent, Richard. So let's talk in terms of you're in New York. I guess at this point, Paul, it's probably in L.A. And you're going to go see Penny Fuller, someone from Northwestern. And again, I say serendipitously, you know, you have an interesting experience, if you tell us. Well, yeah, here it is again. So Paula was in New York with me at that time. She was going back and forth. And I had done some, you know, summer stock and some winter stock and stuff. And Penny, who we went to school with, we had over for dinner. And Penny says, uh, you know, you probably have an audition for the uh, National Company of Barefoot in the Park. I said, huh? What do you mean? <laughs> 
I don't know anything about she you don't know about that she said you're you're perfect for this and I said no one said anything she said you better call your agent Mike Nichols and Neil Simon are auditioning people now and you should get in there she said I'm reading with the people who are doing it so again yes good fortune that we had dinner with Penny that night so I call my agent and I said hey you know they're auditioning for the male lead in the national company and he said, oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. So I said, <laughs> oh, can you get me in there? Yeah, that's what a good idea. I mean, <laughs> if Penny hadn't been there, no, nothing. So nothing, again, yeah. here's, here's this road. Okay. So Penny is reading with the people, and I'm backstage. It's at the, I think, the Plymouth Theater where the play is. And someone, who I won't say who it was, is auditioning before me. And Penny says to me, you know, it's Mike Nichols. She said, don't, not that I would, she don't try and be funny. Just be real. He doesn't want to see anybody who's trying to be. Okay. So I'm backstage and a person who is actually pretty well known is kind of a movie person. I mean, almost, almost a movie star. And I'm back waiting to go on. I'm going to go on after this guy. And then this guy is auditioning, and halfway through his auditioning, I hear Mike. I know it's his voice. I've never met him, but I know from records and stuff, you know. And he says, thank you. And the guy says, well, I'm not finished. And I hear Mike's voice say, yes, you are. And I said, <laughs> oh, boy, okay. <laughs> the next I Okay, and now go to blah, blah, blah. And I come out and I start doing the scene and I hear a little laughter out there. Here's some more little laughs out there. And we finish the scene. And then coming out of the darkness <laughs> with a cigarette smoke coming through the smoke of his cigarette, he comes down the aisle and he says, you know, Mrs. Benjamin is a genius. So he knows that I'm married to Paula. I've met him. And he said, now, as far as this goes, I think it's all fine. You know? <laughs> well, <I'm> thinking, what? <laughs> so it'll be fine. Then I had, he said, I have to go and see some more people. But I, you know what? I think it's all fine. <laughs> <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> out of the theater, my agent now is out there in the lobby, and he said, you just got it. Whoa. That's what Mike decided. Fine was, you got it. One of those words, the translation <laughs> of Mike. <laughs> and then, you see, here's the thing. So there's the luck, fortune, as you say, of Penny having dinner that night. And people say, you shouldn't be nervous when you're auditioning. Really? There's a <laughs> little thing there where your life changes, right? Yeah. yeah. I do the national company of Barefoot in the Park with Myrna Loy and Joan Van Ock. And Myrna, by the way, you know, spectacular. From that, they asked me to direct Barefoot in the Park in London. Then they asked me to do the national tour of The Odd Couple with Dan Daly. Then Neil asked me to uh, do uh, Star Spangled Girl on Broadway. That's from 10 minutes. 
That's wow. the 10-minute audition. And then Neil asks me to direct Laughter on the 23rd Floor as a film, and uh, we do a redo of The Goodbye Girl. That's from... And Neil asked me to be in Sunshine Boys in the movie. Uh, and Mike puts you in Catch-22. Mike puts us in Catch-22. Yeah. Not bad. Not bad. I have a question. Yeah. I don't see how Penny thinks that you are the perfect Robert Redford. I mean, I'm, I don't get it. Well, Redford's, Redford's playing the role. Yes. Why does she think it's you because you're right for it? Or does she think Redford's not right? No, no, I, no. <laughs> I think she's just thinking that you could get this part, you know, in terms of what you can do and, and stuff. Oh, okay. Okay. We'll leave it at that. Yeah. If you like audiobooks, then you will simply love the latest from Julian Schlossberg entitled Try Not to Hold It Against Me. In his memoir read by the author, Schlossberg tells of negotiating with Al Pacino, Burt Reynolds, and Lillian Hellman, hosting the syndicated radio show Movie Talk. Interviewing stars like Jack Nicholson, George Burns, Betty Davis, and Bob Hope. Experiencing the paranormal with Shirley MacLaine and Betty Hill. Restoring Orson Welles' masterly film Othello. Partying with Barbara Streisand and Liza Minnelli. Testifying in a lawsuit against the Beatles, whom he loved. And interviewing over 140 major figures for his series, Witnesses to the 20th Century. With a forward by Academy Award winner Elaine May, Try Not to Hold It Against Me gives listeners the behind-the-scenes look at the rarely seen but crucial work of a producer. Schlossberg recounts the trials and triumphs of work and play as a theater, film and TV producer, and radio host. It's a -a one-of-a-kind autobiography read by one of entertainment's true insiders. Try Not to Hold It Against Me is available on Audible or wherever you get your audiobooks. The idea that you're working with Myrna Loy must have been a knockout for you. I mean, here's this huge movie star from when you were growing up. Was she as nice as, I hope? Nicer than you can possibly imagine. I mean, the loveliest person. In fact, we used to go out between the matinee and wherever we were. We used to go out uh, to uh, dinner between the two shows. The whole cast would usually go together with Myrna. And we'd be in a restaurant or something, and there'd be a distinguished-looking gentleman a couple of tables away who would be glancing over at the table and glancing. You know, someone may be in their 60s, 50s, 60s, and the person would start to get up. And she said, okay, this person on the way over here is going to tell me how he loves me. Yeah. Yeah. And sure enough, and this is sorry to disturb you, Miss Loy, but I have loved you all my life and everything. Of course, she's totally gracious and all. And it happens city after city after city. (laughs) The other amazing thing of doing it with her, we came out here and did it, I think, at the Huntington Hartford here. Well, all of her friends came to see the play, her friends being. Joan Crawford and and Lucille Ball and Groucho Marx and I mean <laughs> wow unbelievable and Joan who like loved to see who's out there I never wanted to see who was out there <laughs> yeah she would peek out before the show and I said don't tell me don't tell me who's <laughs> you know it could be anyone it could be Cary Grant don't 
tell me. Um, so, and once we, oh my God, she, I said, what? what, what, no, don't tell. Anyway, and backstage would come to my dressing room, Lucille Ball and <laughs> Groucho Marx. And Groucho Marx came in and he said, uh, you know, young man, you have to do this twice on Wednesday and Saturday. And then he left. <laughs> <laughs> we should make sure people understand the Joan you were speaking of was not Joan Crawford, but your co-star, Joan Van Ock, right? But Joan Crawford came to the show. Joan Crawford and Myrna Loy at 15, 16 years old were dancers at the Egyptian theater here. So, I mean, you know, the history <laughs> of all this is spectacular. I'm interested because you did the national tour of both Odd Couple and Barefoot in the Park, I'm sure you spent time with Mike. And, of course, we've established earlier that you've become a director and yeah. directed many films. What do you think you picked up from Mike? Could you articulate some of the things you observed? And Yeah, I think so. I mean, one of the things he always said <laughs> he just would say very incisive, short things, and he would just come up and say, just like in real life. <laughs> that would be, you know, his, his thing. And he also was brilliantly funny and entertaining, but got you in, into a certain place in that world of wit because you tried to come up to his level. It was like playing tennis with someone way better than you. He'd create this world that you were in with him. You really weren't up to that, but it felt like you were. He would kid you into the thing in a way. There was some line that I think, I forget what the line was, and he said, look, and he would come out of that smoke haze and up, and Joan, in rehearsal, Joan and say, he's coming for one of us, which is it? So, <laughs> oh my God, I think it's me. No, I said, I think it's me. I think I come up and he said, you know, that line reading that you did, it was good. It's good. Now, I know you're going to find the really right way to do that line. I know you're going to find it, but it'll take some time why don't I do it just the way it should be done? And we'll save a lot of time. Would that be okay <laughs> with you? <laughs> oh, yes, that'll be okay. <laughs> all like that. Yeah. So you're, you're in, a, in a happy place when you're working with him. Well, I, I was happy working with him as well. And what I found was I never saw anyone laugh that hard I never saw anyone cry that much. Yeah, he just had this. These emotions were right on his. Uh, yeah, you know, right on, right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's see. You you've mentioned. Okay, we we've, we've taken the national tour of two gigantic Neil Simon, Mike Nichols plays. You're now going to London to do Baffert in London, which is going to be its premiere there. Yeah, and Marlo Thomas, Danny Massey. And Marlo tells me that you guys go out of town. Like we used to do Boston and Philadelphia in America. Yeah. They go to the Brighton and they go to Margate. And, but you're going in the winter and it's freezing. And she said you went into a restaurant where people were eating with hats and gloves and coats on. Not only that, 
That was Bournemouth. So we go to Bournemouth, which is out on the end of the world out there with just blizzard conditions, wind howling off the Atlantic Ocean or off the English Channel, wherever the heck we were. And there are audience. So the opening of the play, Barefoot in the Park, is about there's no heat in this apartment. We all have to keep our coats on in the apartment. It's freezing in there. That's the opening fun of it until the place gets, you know, Joan sets it up and uh, the character sets it up and makes it all better. But it's all about how barren and cold and uncomfortable the apartment is. Well, in comes our audience. They're all dressed in all kinds of heavy clothing and hats and gloves. And as I see them come into the theater, they don't take any of them off. <laughs> They're sitting in exactly what I said. That's our joke. They are living our joke of the first act. They're not going to find this funny. Uh, and sure enough, they sit there, look at it. And I had said to Marlo and Danny, I said, don't try and get laughs. Just play it for real. Okay. And that's what they do. And there are no laughs in the first act in Bournemouth of Barefoot in the Park. <laughs> and I say to them, okay, this very successful play in New York and, and, and nationally, I've managed to kill it. I've killed it here <laughs> in England. And I go backstage in between, and I said, you know what I said about don't try and get laughs? I said, try. <laughs> and then as they come out at the end of the play, there's some light applause, not much. And as a, a person, they don't know who I am, and they come past me, and this one person turns to his wife and says, this is just the kind of American drivel I hate. <laughs> <laughs> I can't go back to the States. I can't go anywhere after this. <laughs> and in Bournemouth, the play was over. I don't know. And, and Mildred Natwick and Kurt Kasner are in this. And they were in the original production in New York. And the play, I don't know, felt like it was over in 45 minutes. <laughs> anyway, so, yes. Well, what Marlowe remembers, Dick is that you guys went to a restaurant, and in the restaurant they were wearing hats and coats and gloves, and you stood up and you screamed, you don't have to live this way. Oh, <laughs> that could be. That could be. And then we went to South Sea, another, you know, out on the at the end of the world there, and then Brighton. And Brighton changed everything. So, And, of course, London was a giant hit. Yeah, it was yeah, a giant it, hit. It, it worked, yeah. So are you tempted at this point to start directing more and stop acting or not? Because, obviously, you continue acting. But I'm wondering how your head is after Barefoot in London. You know, there's you know, a cliche out here is that people have T-shirts that say, but I, what I really want to do is direct. But I did. That is what I wanted to do. But I was getting acting work, so I didn't quite know how to do that. So anyway, we went, Paula's original agent out here was Phil Gersh, who's basically a director's agent. 
So I had a conversation with Phil originally when Paula was under contract here when she first came out here and just had a nice meeting, a courtesy meeting with her agent, Phil. And I said, you know, I really am interested in directing and all that. So then all these years go by and now we're back with Phil. And he said, well, whatever happened to that directing? He remembered that conversation. I said, well, well, how do I do that? What? How do you do this? And he said, let me get to work on this. And actually, he got me a job directing a pilot uh, here. So I, there was some film and something that anybody could see. So now I had something to show. So that was the way kind of in. <laughs> As you say, you do do a lot of movies before you get back into directing. And let's talk about this first movie. How does Goodbye Columbus, I mean, we're talking about a Philip Roth bestseller. How do they cast someone who's never really been in a movie, let alone a lead? Yeah, how do, how do they? So Paul and I had our TV show, uh, he and she at uh, CBS, and then it got canceled and we're driving back to New York and Paula says to me, something about the book, Goodbye Columbus, not knowing there's any kind of movie or anything. She just happens to mention the book, Goodbye Columbus. And I say, I don't want to read any books. <laughs> I've, I've got nothing else to do, but I'm not going to read any books. She said, okay. So we get to New York and agent calls and says they are casting the movie of Goodbye Columbus. I said, well, I yell into Paul. I said, where's that damn book? <laughs> obviously i read the book anyway and i think this is me this character is me i've got to somehow get this part and i go in larry pierce who directed and stanley jaffe who produced it and i am going to stay in this meeting they're not actually asking me to audition and in those days somebody who had a tv show probably wasn't going to get a part in the movie not then they were separate kind of things. Uh, there, you know, there was a cultural—I don't know what you don't want to call it—class difference. But you were in TV. You're not going to be in movies. Uh, changed with a few people like Steve McQueen and uh, Clint Eastwood, but but you didn't make that jump. Yeah. And we were sad and upset that our show got canceled. But if it had not been canceled, this wouldn't have happened. I go in and I just said to myself, I'm not leaving here until they give me this part. And I, I kept them in there. <laughs> I had told them stories and I, you know, about my uh, background and my upbringing, which was just like the characters and all this. I just, until they were finally fed up with me and they cast me. So that's, that's the way that happened. Isn't that incredible that your first movie was so close to your real life? Now, for many years, and I know you said this about yourself, as an actor, you're married to someone who's much more famous than you at that time. How difficult was that to handle emotionally? Was it tough? Well, I mean, you know Paula. So not with Paula, it isn't, because Paula doesn't have that kind of, what's the word, a crazed ambition she lives life. Life is more important to her 
than just some ambitious kind of quest for, I don't know, stardom or something like that. That's because of Paula. I mean, it is true that in the beginning, <laughs> we, when I was out here in the very, very beginning, and she tried to help me. We had a little apartment uh, over in uh, Culver City near MGM. And she was on the contract there. I mean, whenever the phone rang, it was for her. Uh, oh, it's uh, Bob Hope's assistant. Mr. Hope would like to rehearse with her tomorrow afternoon. They were doing this movie, Bachelor in Paradise. So these were the kind of calls that were always for her. And for me, it'd be somebody from the LA Times wanting a subscription or something like that. There'd be. <laughs> I mean, yeah, for me, not for her, because she was trying to help. And you don't want to be said, oh, her success is something I want. And she always said to me, this isn't what you think it is, because I was the opposite of her. I wanted all of this. I wanted it from when I was a kid, and that wasn't her. No. Well, we should point out, I can't let he and she go by, we should point out that because of her, you became the he in he and she. Right, yeah. And, and that, CBS wanted to do a show with her, and I think it was Perry Lafferty there, wanted to do a show with her, and they said, go see Leonard Stern. He's got a script we like. Uh, and she said, well, I won't do this with, and, without my husband. So they said, well, go meet with, with Leonard. So we did, and Leonard handed us this half-hour pilot script, which we read on the way to our car at, at CBS here on Fairfax. And I said, this is fun. This is good. And Leonard said, okay. So <laughs> Leonard got a call from, from CBS. Oh, Leonard's wife, Gloria, had seen me in Barefoot in the Park in Chicago. Oh, again, fortuitous. She called Leonard. She said, there's an actor here. Is the kind of actor you would like. So again, there's that thing. And that had nothing to do with Paul at that time or anything. So he says, okay, we're going to do it. And he gets a call from somebody at CBS. And they say, have you made that deal with Paula and her husband? And he said, yeah, we're going to do it. He said, can the husband act? <laughs> Ah, well, they found out. But, you know, this is an interesting story, this he and she. First of all, yeah. I think way ahead of its time. Uh, but more interesting to me, they, they're pretty smart at CBS. They're the number one network, but they have your lead-in as Green Acres? I mean, I don't even get that. Yes. I said to Paula when we saw, when we finally watched the first episode on the air, we tuned in early. And what was ahead of us was Green Acres, which ended up with a pig dancing. And I said to Paula, I think I may be wrong about this. I don't think this is our audience. <laughs> well, let's just say, let's say nominated for four Emmy Awards, you as Best Actor and Paula as Best Actress. And on top of that, great reviews and canceled. It canceled. In fact, Mike Dan, uh, who uh, was the head of CBS at that time, 
called us and he said, this is the best show we've had on CBS and we're canceling it. And, and I said, thank you. And I hung up the phone. And I said to Paul, I said, I think Mike Dan just canceled our show. And I think I thanked him because I got hooked on the best show part, but let the cancel part go up. And then many years later, his daughter, Patty Dan, writes this wonderful screenplay that I did with Cher called Mermaids. And that's, that's, that's Mike something. Dan's wow. daughter's book that was turned into the screenplay. Wow. Yep. Well, okay. So I've mentioned a lot of the movies, but I have to tell you, it, and I've certainly followed your career, and happily we work together. Happily is right, because doing this power plays with you was the best experience. Best. Oh, thank you. I, I felt the same way, and I still do. But I have to tell you, everything you've done – I think the Sunshine Boys, your role in that is so extraordinary because you're playing a, a guy who is constantly, he's the tennis ball. These two guys, they're just knocking you back and forth. And you feel it. You feel your 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 angst, your your pain. <laughs> Was it what must have been a good experience, I hope. It was the best experience. In fact, if we have time for this, we're over at Parabross's um, house, which is two blocks from here. We're reading, going the first read-through of the script with Walter and George. And George has the script in front of him, but it's closed. It's not open. We're all open our scripts and stuff. And we start, me and Walter start, and I think George comes in in about 10 pages or something like that. And we're doing it, and we notice we're getting close to when George's character comes in. And we're thinking, uh, okay, maybe somebody should nudge him. He's got to get to page 12 or whatever that is. He's not touching anything. He's just looking around the room. And we're going along, we're going along, and getting close now to when that character comes in. And we think, uh-oh. I look at Herb and think, mm, I don't know if he's got to call his agent or something. I think, I hope this isn't going to be sad. He's just sitting here. He's not doing anything. And we finally get to his entrance. Walter has the line, and we think maybe he'll quickly go through there. And Walter has the line. And then George has the next line. Walter, and the next line, and then it. He's memorized this entire thing. And we're looking like, and Walter says, what the hell? What'd you do, learn this? You he said, aren't you supposed to memorize the script? He said, yeah, but you don't have to learn all of it now. <laughs> so you saw that you were really in. You better not fool around with George Burns. Well, I was so excited, Dick, to have him on my show, George Burns. And I swear to you, he would say things like, well, when Gracie and I played Minneapolis in 1932, uh, Bill Faber was the stage manager. And he said to me, I, I, and, and you knew he was right. You knew it wasn't crap. It was really. Well, I'll, I'll tell you that. We went to, he took me to lunch. Walter never went to lunch. And he stayed in his dressing room and uh, played music and stuff. And George took me, uh, said, do you want to have lunch with me, kid? And I thought, 
I'm having lunch with George Burns. Yeah. Here, you yeah. know, I mean, this is quite. And we go between the big sound stages and stuff. His joke was, "I'm back here at MGM. They like me so much. They've asked me back." And he played there in 1933. <laughs> yeah, I could tell you one story that you could tell me. All right, Uncle Joe. He knew. Uncle Joe. Yeah. So I said to him, we're, we, and I said, you know, my uncle was in vaudeville. He said, oh, yeah? And he said, what was his name? I said, Joe Browning. He said, Joe Browning. Yeah. He said, me and Gracie were on the bill with him. Your uncle was a headliner, and Gracie and I were below him. You know that? I said, I didn't know that. And he said, you know what? I said, what? I know his act. You want to hear it? Oh my God. <laughs> and he starts to do my, because I had seen my uncle when I was a tiny kid at the Palace Theater in New York. He played the Palace, and George starts to do his act. But the idea of George asking me every day, you want to have lunch with me, kid? And we walk to the MGM commissary. Oh my. And we should point out that Jack Benny was originally going to play the role. Yeah. That's right. And sadly uh, passed away. But he had his manager, Irving Fine, also managed George. And that's how George got the role. And then, of course, he did Oh God, and he became a movie star late in his life. It was really something. I remember when he was uh, turning 100, and somebody said, uh, you're going to be 100. Uh, yeah, yeah. And he said, well, I, he said, I, I've got to live to 100. I'm booked. <laughs> and that ends part one of my interview with dick benjamin it's always good to end on a laugh next week he'll be back with me on movie talk for another lively session hope you can as we used to say tune in thanks for listening this is julian schlossberg wishing you a good day or evening Thanks for joining us on Julian Schlossberg's Movie Talk. Remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Produced by Audavita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.